I think for a lot of people it seems quite strange coming to church and singing about um, being miserable and overwhelmed. And yet, I think for many of us, that's an experience that we can identify with. And we're going to look at some of that. Uh, we are, for those of you who are visitors, we are, we've been looking through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And we are at chapter 12, which you'll find on page 1165. Maybe um, in thinking about that psalm as well, you will have heard uh, Donald prayed for Anna uh, Gately, I think uh, her name is now. Some of you will know her better as Anna Carr. And uh, Anna, uh, she, we please do pray for her because she is in hospital. Uh, she is uh, going to have to give to birth three months early and there's only a 50-50 chance of uh, the baby surviving and uh, we've been asked to pray for her. Uh, I remember Anna uh, very, very well. When she was a student here, I was due to go and do a debate on euthanasia. And Anna, as some of you know, uh, had cancer and was dying with cancer and was in considerable pain because it was bone cancer. And I went to see her at Roxburgh House and she was in a lot of pain. And she said to me, David, please tell them, don't let doctors kill people like me. Um, she made a remarkable recovery, uh, but this current circumstance is uh, very uh, difficult, obviously, for her. So please do remember her. Second um, Corinthians 12. Let me read from the beginning. I'm going to read the first four verses to start with. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. Sorry, I'll go on as well, actually. Um, Verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should cho choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Now, what would you say if I said to you, I'd been to heaven uh, and I could tell you about it? If I wrote a book, and said about going to heaven. I'm now, uh, I've read, uh, there's a, genre, a whole genre in these books. Uh, there have been four on the New York Times bestsellers list in the past couple of years. Each of them selling uh, up to 20 million copies. It is, uh, people seem to lap this stuff up. One I, I read fairly recently was called Proof of Heaven. Uh, where uh, a neurologist uh, has this story of going to heaven. There's a, uh, a film that in the United States has made a considerable amount of money that's uh, coming over to this country as well, based on that proof of heaven. If I said I'd been to heaven, if I advertised and said, look, I want to tell you about experience I had, would that make you listen to me more? Would that, would that make you think I've got more credibility would it confirm your faith? Would it make you think more? 
Or let me put it another way. Supposing I told you that I'd been miraculously healed, that I was near the point of death and God miraculously healed me, would that make you more likely to believe? People will say, yeah, I'll believe. Show me someone who's been to heaven or show me someone who's been healed in answer to prayer and I'll believe. That's not the way that it works, is it? The first event I spoke at after I came out of hospital three years ago was up in Thurso and a scientist who was speaking stood up and said the reason I don't believe in God is I've never met anyone who's been healed in answer to prayer. So I had my script all prepared for my talk immediately after him and I just ripped it up and threw it away and said well now you have and I explained what had happened to me. Did he believe? No of course not. He had lots of different ways of explaining that away and thinking about it. Now, this passage is something that's so relevant to us today because I think the Christian church is in enormous danger of finding ourselves going down a route that the Corinthian church uh, went down. And it's this. The Corinthians were incredibly into spiritual gifts and experiences. Read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Spiritual gifts were a big issue in Corinth. I find it quite interesting that often people who want to make a big thing out of spiritual gifts today will cite 1 Corinthians as an example of what the church should be like. 1 Corinthians was a mess. The church was an absolute mess. Paul was writing because it was such a mess. Now, Paul absolutely believed in spiritual gifts. He believed in the charismata, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So do I. But we need to take all of Scripture together, and in particular, the first and second Corinthians, to realize that we ha- how careful we have to be with this because so many Christians have been deceived by a misunderstanding and the misuse of uh, the idea of spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences. Because you'll notice here how reluctant Paul was to speak about his experience. He starts off saying, I know a man who. Now it's him. He he goes on to say it is him. But he's extremely reluctant to talk about it. And you'll notice that he doesn't say what happened. He doesn't describe it. He doesn't say what he saw. He doesn't say what he heard. He's describing an experience that occurred was, that was really, for him, very, very extraordinary. And I find it somewhat strange that those who are professing to follow Jesus Christ and New Testament Christianity are so different from the Apostle Paul and they will boast and tell you about every single detail of every experience they've had. And that in itself makes me want to question the experience. So first of all, we'll look at this whole question of his vision, verses 1 to 4. The background to this is Paul had been criticized because he did not have uh, visions. He did not have revelations. How could he be an apostle? The apostles were people who, who did have that. The, the books of the New Testament are the books that we have that came through the apostles having these revelations. Well, how do we know? Incidentally, it's interesting. when we're talking about the Bible, how do we know anything? This is where we have to be so careful. I had two nice young men came to my door uh, this week. 
And they were dressed in their suits and they had their badges. And they were very, very nice. I thought I was very nice to them, but animals thought I was a wee bit aggressive. Uh, I said, if you think that's aggressive, it was really mild compared to what I wanted to do. But anyway, I was talking to these nice young men and they were, they gave me the usual spiel, you know, the patter that you get. And I, I said to them, um, how do you know? They said, what? How do you know? And you know what their answer was? I feel it in my heart. So you want me to believe things because of what you feel in your heart? He says, well, if you pray to God, I said, I prayed to God and God told me that you were liars or God told me you'd been demonically deceived. That probably was the aggressive bit that Annabelle was speaking about. <laughs> you know, I said, I feel that in my heart. It's like the lovely old lady on the island of Lewis who when the Jehovah's Witnesses came to her door, they asked her, are you interested? And she said, no, not at all. And she said, well, they said to her, don't you believe that it's the last days? And they, she said to them, yes, absolutely. She says, well, why do you think it's the last days? She said, because you're at my door. <laughs> Which I thought was a very smart answer. But they were, they, these, these guys were saying, no, you've got, I feel it in my heart. You've got to believe in my heart. Amazingly, ye, uh, yesterday, I was the subject of some criticism and attack. And uh, this minister wrote and said, the God that David Robertson believes in is not the God who's in my heart. And it's not the word of God in my heart. Well, here's something. I don't want you to believe in God because he's in my heart or because of what I feel. My heart's a mess and it's all over the place. And if you started doing that, if I said to you, believe because of what I feel in my heart or believe because of what you feel in your heart, it's the wrong way around. How do we know? Peter says we have the word of the prophets made more certain. It's, we know because of Jesus. And it's, it's all got to come back to Jesus. And how do we know about Jesus? It's his word. Now, I do not dispute at all that God can grant dreams and visions and everything else. Don't dispute that at all. But I do dispute that they have the same authority as the word of God. We bring it always back to the word of God. Acts 16 verse 9 during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Acts 18 in Corinth. This is Paul set up the church in Corinth because of visions. These people were saying, you, you don't have visions. And Paul says, how do you think I came to you in the first place? I was on my way uh, into t Turkey. I was on my way heading east. But I had a vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. In Acts 18, verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one's going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. The Corinthian church was only there because God came to Paul when Paul was discouraged and said to him, keep going, keep preaching, keep teaching. I have many people yet in this city who are going to believe. So the irony is that these super apostles who were claiming to have all these visions, the church was only there because Paul actually did have a vision, a real vision. But he doesn't refer to that here. What he's referring to here is something that occurred 14 years previously, something that occurred well after he'd become a believer, something which he speaks of in the third person because he doesn't really want to draw attention to himself. What was that experience? We don't know. Because Paul doesn't tell us. So we'd be incredibly unwise to speculate. 
he talks about being caught up to paradise. And he uses this expression, the third heaven, which in the kind of Greek culture idea of the time was basically saying, I was, I, I was caught up to heaven. And he says, you know, I heard things I'm not going to tell you. I can't tell you. I, I'm not permitted to tell. I heard inexpressible things. He says, I don't even know what this experience was. I don't know whether my body went up or whether it was just in my mind, whether it was a vision. He said, I can't, I can't talk about it. I can't explain it. I can't describe it. He does say, incidentally, that um, it was paradise. You'll note it was a very profound and a very, very deep experience. It was very, very vivid. And it was very personal and very private. And it couldn't be verified. This could never be proved. So Paul actually doesn't use it in his arguments. He doesn't use it to say, you've got to believe this because I went to heaven. Or this is what heaven is like. Paul is always focused on Christ, always focused on the word of God, and he never focuses on his experience. He doesn't say, you must believe it because I experienced. If you're a Christian, please don't say to people, you have to become a Christian because I've got Jesus in my heart. I know Jesus is alive because he's in my heart. That's a valid experience for you, but if that's what you base your faith on, you're in real, real trouble. You're a Christian because it's true. You're a Christian because Jesus is who he says he is. You're a Christian because Jesus has worked in your life. But Jesus is not alive because you feel him in your heart. He's alive because he's alive, because he was raised from the dead. Paradise here was a a Persian idea, an Iranian idea. And the idea was of an enclosed or walled garden. Um, I was visiting, I can't remember, oh, Ian and Alicia. Uh, paradise gardens on the hilltown, at the bottom of the hilltown. Well, it was kind of enclosed a wee bit, uh, but you know, maybe it's not quite the Persian uh, Jewish idea of, of heaven. The idea is a walled garden that is a place of supreme happiness. Revelation 2 verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Luke 23, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So all that Paul is saying is this. He's saying, I had an experience which gave me a foretaste of heaven, which was so deep and so profound and so vivid that I cannot speak about it. I cannot tell you about it. It is beyond communicating. And that is a world of difference from all these books that go in and tell you and usually describe worlds which are remarkably like the worlds that the people themselves live in. My problem with all these books about people going to heaven is simply this, is I think they trivialize the glory of God. I think they trivialize what heaven is. And I think they open up the Christian gospel largely to ridicule. Now, can people have experiences? Of course they can. I would be um, foolish to deny that in myself, um, particularly the time that I, I was ill. I did experience things, but I'm not going to talk about them. You can't say to people, you have to believe in this because of what I experienced. 
Sometimes you might be tempted if you're here, you might be saying, well, I would believe in God if I had a vision. No, I don't think so. How do you know? You might say, well, if I, if I, gra- I, mean, I met a man once who, who, in fact, he came to see me and he said, God came and spoke to me in the middle of the night. He wasn't a believer. And he said, God told me I have to do this. I have to read his word. And I, I, I absolutely believed what he said. And I said, you need to do this. And he had this profound experience. Where is he today? He's an unbeliever denying the faith. You ask him, what about that experience? Oh, it's just chemicals in my brain. You know, it, be careful when we do this. But I don't want to deny, and Paul is stating very clearly, that there can be these kinds of experiences. And he had one. He then talks about the cost. Um, Verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had this extraordinary experience, and incidentally, as far as we know, it is the only time he had this experience, 14 years previously. But it came at an enormous cost. We, we, those of you who know your Bibles, you'll often hear this messenger of Satan thing quoted, Paul's thorn in the flesh. But the reason it came was because Paul had such a deep and profound experience that in order to prevent him becoming conceited, God allowed this messenger of Satan in his own life. Spiritual revelations can bring spiritual pride. It's why it's so wrong when you get these televangelists and others standing going, God did this and God took me here and I had this happen and, and all the rest of it. We, we should be prepared to testify what God has done in our lives. But we need to be very careful not to turn that into boasting about ourselves. Rather, than glorying in Christ. I know many Christians who've gone through a really tough time because they've thought, I've never had a dream. I've never had this kind of revelation. I've never been healed. I've never experienced this miraculous thing. And there are these people I meet all the time and and they're having God talk to them every single day. What's wrong with me? And the answer is, there's nothing wrong with you. You're normal. And the answer is, I would look at these people and say, are you sure? Because there's far too many Christians being misled down a a path of absolute denial of Christ by people who keep citing their own experiences. And you see, this is where our culture comes in because our culture says, whatever you do, don't question someone's experience. So you see, the Mormons have got it because they stand at your door and say, I know it because I feel it in my heart. Well, you're a nice, polite 21st century Westerner. You're not going to say, actually, no, your heart's a mess. Your heart's wrong. You can't say that. That's someone's experience. But what if the experience is wrong? So Paul is given this this tremendous cost. You will often find that the real mountaintops, if you like, of Christian experience are balanced with the valleys and are balanced 
with the depths. Paul is actually saying to the Corinthians, I've had this experience, but I don't want you to judge me by this experience. I don't want you to judge my message by this experience. He's saying, I actually was given a thorn in the flesh to stop me being conceited, becoming conceited. Now, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. Again, there's numerous speculations, head and earaches. Some people think his thorn in the flesh was other people, people like Hymenaeus and Alexander who were in the church and who so let him down. Others think it was his eyes or depression or guilt about his past, his memory of the persecution of the church, and so on. You will get all of these, but we just don't know. I I think thorn in the flesh indicates it was something within his own body. He had this bodily experience, he's not sure, or maybe his mind experience that took him to heaven. He had a bodily experience or an experience in his mind which overwhelmed him, which caused him to plead to God three times to take it away. This was not mild pain. This was something as profoundly deep in terms of suffering as his spiritual experience had been in terms of ecstasy and glory. And this was the, what was the messenger of Satan? I think it's, you know, you don't, again, don't over-dramatize this. I think it's just simply this. It's Satan coming to him and getting Paul to say in his own mind, why you, Paul? Why are you struggling? Why is God letting this happening? It was to, to torment Paul and to buffet Paul. It was to have Paul lying awake at night going, why is this happening to me? Why can't I sleep? Why am I going through this pain? Why is this occurring in my family? Why is this occurring in my home? And he didn't have the answer. And Satan is coming and saying, as exactly he said to Eve, is God good? Did God really say? Did God give you that vision of the church in Corinth? Are you sure? Is God really with you? If Jesus is alive and all-powerful, how is this occurring? How can I, as the devil, so oppress you that you can't get out of your bed? A messenger of Satan to torment me. Very strong words. Three times he pled, and three times he got the answer, no. Lord, take this from me. You know, when you get people who go say, if you just pray in faith, then it will happen. There's the Apostle Paul. Do you think he's not praying in faith? He prays in absolute faith. And God says, no, no, I'm not taking. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes the answer is no. And we as Christians need to realize that. The trouble is, we can know what the end is, but we so often do not know the means. Now, what I mean by that is this. God wants to make us holy. That is his aim. God wants to take us to paradise. That is his aim. That is what he is going to do. God is going to give us the victory. That is what he is going to do. God is going to glorify us in such a way that if we were to see even a glimpse of it just now, it would so overwhelm us that we couldn't speak. God is going to do that. That's the end. But the means of getting there, the experiences through which we go, we don't know. And we can't go to God and say to him, Lord, if you love me, then you will do this. You will take away this pain. You will heal this person. You will keep this person alive. You will give me this job. You will grant this to occur in my church. And so often we pray like that. And God says, no, no, that's not how it works. God, we see the end a little bit. 
we see a little bit of where we are just now. God sees everything. He sees it from the past, the present, and the future. He sees what is best for us far better than our understanding can comprehend. Because if you could comprehend it, you would be God. And you see, to me, that's part of the problem with all these people who say, well, I'd believe in God more if I saw what heaven was like. What you're saying is, God has to be subject to me, to my understanding. If I understand it, then it's okay. Actually, the truth is, we don't understand. We can't understand. We won't grasp it all. Maybe in, in glory we'll understand every single thing. I think that's what that means when it says Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. Does it mean we're crying in heaven? No, I think it means that every single tear we will know why. We will know. Jesus will say that's why. That's why. That's why. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote to them in verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God will give you grace to live today, to prepare for glory. God will not give you the grace for tomorrow, today. God will not give you the grace for next year, today. He doesn't give a stock of grace and let it run down. Each day, he gives us grace. The day of supposing I find myself in a situation where I have a period of time of illness, dying, and then eventually die. Right now, I couldn't face that. But right now, God doesn't call me to face it. When he calls me to face it, he will give grace. He gives grace for every situation. See, some of you right now, you are so worried about what might happen. What will happen if my husband this? What will happen if my children this? What will happen if I don't meet a partner? What will happen if I lose my job? What will happen if I get ill? And God says, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, Satan desires to destroy. Satan takes the good things of God. And this is so important to grasp. He takes the good things. It's not that the devil comes along and all these bad things. You know, you can understand um, ISIS beheading people. Oh, that's evil. Of course it is. But the devil's greatest trick is to take what is good and turn it into something that is evil. So he takes Paul's spiritual experience and he wants to turn it into something evil. There is nothing good that the devil does not try to turn to evil. The great example of that, of course, is Job. But here's the great thing. God, double bluffs if you like, God takes the evil things that Satan tries to do and turns them into good. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Do you grasp that? Do you grasp that the devil will take even the... That great relationship you've got. He wants to twist it. He will take those really good things. Twist it. Turn them into bad things. And God says no. I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to take 
even the most horrendous evil and turn it. And that's where Paul is coming in here. He's saying to the super apostles, with you, with your revelations and your dreams and so on. Yes, some of us have had that too. But you know, it was such a humbling experience because God had to prevent that being turned for evil and so he had to keep me humble. And I pleaded and I pleaded and I pleaded and he said no. And that's why he can then talk about this strength. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecution. Here's the trick the key, if you like, for Christian living. In the midst of weakness and frustration, he would find the power of God more than sufficient. Maybe you don't often feel like this, but some days you might feel like, I am Superman. You know, I can do anything. Uh, I had a kind of brief moment of that uh, this week when I was cycling through uh, Balgay Hill and I thought, do you know, I'm going to take the long way home. I can go up through Camperdown Park. That is no problem for me. You know, I am Superman. I've got the muscles. I can make it. Uh, and I did that. And then I thought, I can take the hill town as well. Um, I, I didn't quite manage that one. Uh, but, you know, you just, you, you just have that feeling. You feel really strong. You feel really powerful. And then other times, you can hardly walk to the end of the road and you're just saying, give me strength. Give me strength. Spiritually, actually, the stronger position is when you realize how weak you are. When you realize how frustrating things in your life are, other people are, and you yourself are. Clement says this, here is the paradox of the cross, that only in humiliation do we find God exalting us. Only in dying do we find God making us alive. Only in throwing our lives away do we find God giving life back to us. Only when I am weak am I strong. Because you see, the key for the Christian life is not your strength, but God's grace. My grace, and the stress is on the my. My grace is sufficient for you. Not your power, not your strength, not anything else, but my grace. And it's more than sufficient for even the most trying of circumstances. There's a book I would highly recommend by a guy called Francis Chan, and I would recommend his, his, his videos as well. Um, he's a book called Crazy Love. And I, I've been reading that this week, and there was two things, two quotes that stuck out for me as regards this passage. First of all, he's talking about worry and stress, and this is what he says, both worry and stress reek of arrogance. Now, you might not think that. You might think, well, worry is a sign of humility, but it's not. Worry and stress reek of arrogance. They declare our tendency to forget that we've been forgiven, that our lives here are brief, that we are headed to a place where we won't be lonely, afraid, or hurt ever again, and that in the context of God's strength, our problems are small indeed. Why are we so quick to forget God? Who do we think we are? So you see, you might be here right now and you may be crippled by worry and crippled by stress and part of that is just your human frailty but part of it also is devilish arrogance because you're forgetting who God is. You're listening to the lie of the devil about the goodness of God and the power of God. 
You're forgetting who God is and you're forgetting who you are. You are weak. You cannot take a single breath without God. You can't sort out the world. You cannot sort out your family. You can't sort out your own life. You can't recalibrate, reorganize, reboot yourself. You are weak. But God's grace is sufficient. Again, Chan says this. If life were stable, I'd never need God's help. Since it's not, I reach out for him regularly. I am thankful for the unknowns and that I don't have control because it makes me run to God. That's Paul's point. I had this tremendous experience. I was caught up to the third heaven. I saw things, I heard things that it's not permissible to tell. I came back down to earth, if you like, and I had this messenger of Satan that so tormented me, so tortured me. I pleaded and pleaded and pleaded. And God said, no, my strength, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. The funny thing was, I was really getting into this on Monday, sitting up in that wee office, and suddenly I got this almighty migraine. Just the worst one I've had for a long time. And I thought, oh no, I can't even be bothered going home. And I thought just, and then I was feeling all sorry for myself. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, you're just busy here talking about strength being made perfect for weakness. So pray three times for it to go away. So I did and it didn't. And then I just thought, just carry on. Remember, it doesn't need you to be in it with a clear head and clear mind and all the rest of it. It's not about you. It's about God. It's God's word. Second Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. 1 Corinthians 1.27, you see how this theme is all throughout Corinthians. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I'm sure Paul had in mind Isaiah 40, 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. There are some who may be here this morning and you're not believers. And to be honest, you're too strong in yourself. You're not going to come to Jesus because you don't need Jesus as far as you are concerned. And you are so wrong. And I pray that God in his graciousness and mercy will cause you to see just how weak you are in every part of your life. There are some who are here who are believers, but you've really forgotten God because you think, my hand got me this wealth. My wisdom got me this health. My goodness got me this church. And God says, no, 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 no. You need to learn. You need to learn. Now, it may be that we get a wee bit um, overwhelmed in all of this. And I certainly feel it. But there is another time in scripture that somebody went to God and three times asked God, please take this from me. And you know when that was. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus Christ being made fully aware of what he was about to suffer for our sakes went to his father and said, this cup is too bitter. This cup is too much. Take it from me. Nevertheless, Not what I want, but what you want. Jesus wanted the cup to go, but he was prepared to take it for our sake. 
And that's the thing that, that more than anything else gives me just such enormous joy and enormous hope. That in the midst of the deepest and most bitter experience, there is no pit, says Rabbi Duncan, there is no pit so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. And that's why you will find that some of the most extraordinary Christians you will ever meet are those who have gone through the most broken and tough experiences, not because they've had the strength to do it, but precisely because they didn't. Christ came alongside them. Christ aided. Christ helped. We sing sometimes, he is my life, my strength, my song. We're going to finish by singing, uh, my soul finds rest in God alone. Please remember that. If you're not a believer, seek Christ because you need him. If you are a believer, seek Christ because you need him. You have no strength of your own, but in Christ you can do all things who gives you strength. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you grant us the most extraordinary things. We live in a world of such incredible variety and beauty. You give us the most amazing experiences. And there is joy and love and peace. And also, there is brokenness and hatred and bitterness. And there is pain and sorrow and suffering. And we shrink from it. Rightly so. That is not why we were made. And yet in this broken world, that is what we experience. We bless you. We bless you that you came to heal this brokenness. We bless you, O Lord, that we can go to every one of our friends and neighbors and family and workmates and say, There is a savior. There is a healer. There is someone who restores ultimately harmony. Oh Lord, we pray that whatever spiritual experiences you grant us, and we do long for that, that you would enable us always to place our trust and our faith in you and not in other people's experience or even our own. Our soul finds rest in you alone. Lord, some of us are here and we are so worried. We are so concerned. We are so beat up. We are so guilt-ridden. We're so frustrated and so angry and so weak and so despairing. Teach us to lift our eyes away from our own circumstances. Not that they don't matter, they do. But teach us to lift our eyes to you. That we see the one who bears us above the waves. We see the one who leads us to that paradise, that garden of rest and tranquility and joy and delights beyond number. Lord, help your people to see that's guaranteed and enable us to live our lives here as those who point the way for others and rejoice in you. In your name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, 
please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.